Imagine that you are Sabrina Butler. You grew up in poverty, endured racism and oppression. You are a high school dropout, married at age 15 with two young children by age 17. Life is hard, but your worst nightmare occurred on April 11th, 1989. Your nine-month-old son died, and you attempted to save his life. Twelve police officers questioned you, and three detectives interrogated you. They interrogated you without your mother, father, brothers, or an attorney. They charged you with a crime you did not commit, capital murder. During the trial, they found you guilty of capital murder, and then the court ordered you to death by lethal injection. You endured, you endured abuse all your life. However, that abuse was heaped on you by ambitious people hiding within a system that was unreal. Why would powerful men rush to put a powerless young girl to death? Now you wake up and your nightmare is over. Nevertheless, enlightened citizens must work to end a corrupt system designed to kill the powerless, guilty, or innocent. A civilized society does not want to miss the opportunity to right the wrongs. I am honored to have Sabrina Butler Smith on open mic. The truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. That's what you're going to hear on my podcast, Open Mic. I'm going to tell you things that most lawyers won't tell you. We expose the truth and bring you justice. I want you to go for the win in law and in life. Welcome. Hi, Mike. Nice. Nice. To, thank you for having me. I mean, <laughs> it's my pleasure. Uh, I just read that from your website, which I found, which I find very powerful. Um, I'm going to put the link so people can get to it. But, you know, I believe you're our eighth exoneree we've had on open mic and your story is chilling. And I'm just honored that you are here. Thank you. And uh, let's jump right in. This this all happened. Uh, with the tragic death, death of your infant son, Walter, that turned into an even bigger tragedy when you were charged with his murder. You were just 17 at the time of his death, 18 at the time of trial. Tell us what happened on April 11th, 1989 to your nine-month son. Well, at that time, I had been in Columbus, Mississippi alone since I was 14 years old because me and my mom didn't have such a good relationship. And when I got pregnant with my oldest son, uh, she married me away to his to his father. And so that's how I ended up in Columbus, Mississippi by myself. Um, and then that marriage, my marriage only lasted like a year or so before we uh, divorced and split up. And then I tried to go back to school and put myself in school and uh, try to finish my education. And I met someone else and ended up pregnant again. And with my second son, little Walter, on the incident in question, um, I had finally ended up getting me an apartment and I had moved to downtown Columbus 
And I didn't have a car or telephone or anything like that when I moved into the apartment complex. No one knew me where I stayed. So it was just basically me and my younger son. My oldest son was at his grandparents' house. And I back then, I used to like to do a lot of jogging and stuff like that. And and the way this happened was one night I decided to put my son to sleep and I put him in the bed. And in the apartment complex where I stayed, it was in a dead end. And I decided to jog to the end of the street where uh, the apartments were and then turn around and jog back. That was wrong. You know, but at the time I was young and I just sometimes I made, you know, not good decisions. And so when I got back to the house, I kind of knew when my son would wake up. So I went in the kitchen um, to get his bottle. And when I went and got his bottle, I went in his room. As soon as I went in his room, I noticed something was wrong. He he wasn't breathing. So I didn't I didn't know what to do. First thing I did was I grabbed him, you know, because I didn't you know, I didn't know how to do no CPR or nothing else. So I grabbed him and I started yelling. I ran outside and it was like 11, 12 o'clock at night. And I was beating on any door. Anybody would listen. Some lady next door to me, she came out and she told me, you know, her kids were in the bed and she didn't have time. So she closed the door in my face. So I had to run downstairs. And when I ran downstairs, I was beating on those doors. And some lady from the end apartment, she came out, she grabbed my son and she took him in and put him on the floor. She was a white girl, younger white girl. She put him on the floor and she started CPR. So I ran out and I finally got this couple to um, take me to the hospital. So when I got back, went back in the apartment, I asked her, you know, well, I didn't ask her anything. She just told me to blow in his mouth, hold his nose and press in his stomach. I would later find out that that was the wrong way. I applied adult CPR to my son all the way to the hospital. You know, but I was scared. I was just trying to get him to breathe. I can remember saying, baby, breathe. And I was crying and I was upset. So when we got to the hospital, they took him from me and they stayed back there a long time with him. And then what was going through my mind at the time was that, man, you're in so much trouble because, you know, you left your son in the house, you know, and you fixing to go to jail. But never in a million years that I think these people would charge me with murder. That wasn't even nowhere on my mind. But I knew I couldn't be honest. Sabrina, was your was your son healthy up until this point? Yes, he didn't. He didn't exhibit any signs to let me know something was wrong. And That's he had why never I didn't know anything was wrong. And had you had he had his regular shots and regular pediatrician appointments up until nine months? He had his shots and everything. The only problem that they said they saw was an irregular heartbeat. So I had took him to the doctor two weeks prior to that for the irregular heartbeat, but they said they couldn't see anything. They couldn't find anything. So I, I thought everything was okay. And he has never, he never broke any bones before nine months. He was never in a hospital for falling off a couch or anything like that. No. When we first got out of the hospital, he had pneumonia. Okay. Both of us had it. Both of us had to end up going back in the hospital for that. And, and did that you was call, the only thing. did somebody call 911 during all this or did you just take him to the hospital? Because I just you, took him straight to the hospital okay. from, from there. Um, and, and, and then. then let me ask you this. So, so you're at the hospital, the, the workers, uh, the, the nurses and doctors are working on your son. You're out there panicking because you thought you were in trouble because you left him alone. Right. And then, and then what happened? I, I, I said to myself, I had to lie. So I wasn't honest. I just started making up anything that I could make up because I was scared. And I you know, knew that was wrong to leave him at the house by itself. I knew that part was wrong, but what I didn't deserve saying? what they did to me. No, no, of course not. What were the, what were the lies you were telling? I can remember everything. I can't remember everything that I said, just whatever they asked me, you know, 
I would have to go back because this case is like 30 some years, almost 30 years old. But I can remember just saying, uh, you know, I had somebody friends over or something. I think I said uh, I left and met a babysitter's house or something like that. I think I said about Did a I, I, I might have read that you went jogging, that you told them you went jogging with the baby. Yeah. Does that sound I, it's a lot of versions? I think it's okay. a lot of versions. It's you, a were lot of versions. you were panicking. You were panicking. Yeah. I, I was just trying to figure out, you know, how to. I was lying. I told a lie is what I did because I was scared. And did you ever try to blame a babysitter? I did. I said I had a babysitter over to the house or something like that. I think okay. I said. So there were um, lots of lots of lies which did not right. help in what happened. Right. It did not happen. It did so not the, help. So the doctors came out and told you your son had passed? No, they told me to come in the room where he was. And I can remember sitting and holding him. And a lot of those statements were done during that time. So that's why I'm telling you, I don't remember everything that I did say. I probably could have said I was an elephant. I don't know what I didn't say because I was the thought in my mind. What I could remember so vividly was that these people were lying to me because nobody looked like me. Everybody was, you know, white and everybody was, you know, I was, it was like I was outside of myself and I was trying to get up and leave and take my baby with me. I can remember that vividly because, you know, they were saying you can't take them with you. You can't. And I remember arguing with them. So I know that I wasn't the way I should have been when they were talking to me. So I, so after that happened, I, I had to go to the police station, went down to the police station and I continued telling lies is what I did. And so they told me go home. So I went home. Um, the same night this happened, I couldn't wait for the sun to uh, rise because I was too busy trying to figure out what had happened. I was walking around trying to figure out why did he stop breathing? What was wrong? So I found a way back to the hospital the next morning and I was headed into the hospital when the detectives were there and they came and they said, well, we need to take you back down for more questioning. And they put me in the back of the police car and they took me to uh, the police station. Before I could get in the room good, before I could sit down, they started yelling and jumping in my face. And this went on for like four hours. I know I was in interrogation for four hours. I mean, everything that I tried to say when I finally did break and tell the truth about me leaving the house, he said, no, that's not what happened. He said, no, that's not what happened. He said, excuse me. He said, you stumped your baby. You beat him. That's what you did. He said, you killed this baby. You did this. And I said, no, sir, I did not kill my son. Yes, you did. This is what you did. Everything that I was telling him, he was balling up, throwing it in the trash. And there was another detective in the room with me. And he sat there the whole time. He really didn't say nothing. It was just the lead detective. And so uh, after so many hours of interrogation, I was, I was just done. I was exhausted. I was tired. And I just he threw the paper in my face and he said, sign this. So when you were being interrogated at the police station, had, had your baby already passed or did you not know what was happening with your baby's health? Yeah, he had already passed. That was the next day, but I didn't know what he passed from. Nobody yeah. said anything to me. Nobody told me anything. They just told me so that they could save him. So there, you got you. You said earlier you finally got to the truth where you told them you left the baby, you got back, the baby wasn't breathing, and the officers or detectives are saying, "No, no, no, that's not what happened. You beat your baby, you stomped your baby." Is that what you yeah. said? Yes. Okay. So then, what happened next? Um. Then the last thing they they read me my rights, but when they read me my rights at that age, I thought that 
You have the right to remain silent meant be quiet until spoken to. Mm -hmm. I had no clue of any legal. I didn't know. You know what I'm saying? I didn't understand that at that age. Did you ask for your mother or father and say, I'm only 17 or you didn't know to say that? I was so scared. I I didn't, I didn't know any, I didn't ask anything. I was, they, they scared me to death. And were you writing, were you writing statements out? No, I was talking. I was talking and then he was writing when I was talking. And then he said, no, this is not what happened. So he bought it up and threw it in the trash. Hmm. And then eventually, eventually, because I've read all your stuff, you signed a confession. Yes, I did. And what do you remember about that? What I remember about the confession is I did not sign what he told me to. I signed at the bottom of the page because I felt like somebody would see this and say, well, if this is so true, why did she sign right here? Why didn't she put it on the line? And and, then it did come up in the second trial. So, you know, that was the only thing I knew to do was to sign not where he told me to. So tell me how the, what did you confess to? He told, uh, I confessed to hitting my, hitting my child. In the stomach? Yes. And what did you eventually learn how your child died? I mean, in the, in that week or two weeks? I did not learn that in that week or two weeks. I did not learn what my child died from until the second trial when I ended up with two new attorneys. So wow. I never knew. I never knew. So what happened after the confession assigned? Were you immediately arrested? M- immediately arrested. And I was charged with uh, a child abuse charge. that wasn't even a law until 23 days after I was already arrested and locked up. Did you, did they let you out so you could plan a funeral for your, for Walter or how did that work? Was not able to grieve, was not able to go to a funeral. Didn't know where he was buried until two years after I got out. Wow. So, wow. So they charged you. Did they, uh, how, tell me about getting your first attorney. Um, the attorneys that I, the, the attorneys that I got didn't know about them until two days before the trial. Um, I learned that I had a uh, Mosley Sutter and Richard Burdine. Those were my um, court appointed attorneys that I had gotten. Wait, 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 wait. Hold on, hold on, hold on, hold on. You didn't meet them for, until two days before the two days before what? trial, two days before trial. They was on paperwork. It was on paperwork that I had gotten. But the first little, you know, once you go to the preliminary hearing or whatever that is, you go to it first. But I did not actually officially meet them until two days before trial. So I had no preparations. I did not understand what I had to do, what I was supposed to do until then. All they told me to do was sit and look at the jury. Uh, okay. Um, I'm, I'm, my mind's a little uh, blown by that. Um, because so, they only got a thousand dollars for my case. That's all they were able. That's all they were got for a capital case back then. That I so, mean, that's outrageous. What year is this again? 89, 89, 90 when I made it to trial. It, 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 it's outrageous. So, so tell me what you remember about that trial. I remember that nobody, it was not a jury of my peers. I'm sitting here looking at everybody and nobody looked like me except for one person. And I mean, I knew in my heart that it was over for me. I knew that because I didn't have, they did not call one witness, not one, not even the girl that did the CPR before me. 
They they did. She sat in the back of the courtroom the whole trial. And, and I'm, it, I'm thinking because she was white, you know, they didn't call her. Are you being are you being verbal? Are you saying anything? Are you asking questions? Or are you just sitting I there quiet? When I was next to my attorney. I told him, I said, please let me take the stand. Let me tell what happened. He said, no, we have this thing nipped in the bud was his actual words. We have this thing nipped in the bud. We don't want you to take the stand while popping candy and drunk during the whole trial. Drunk? He was drunk during the whole trial. Richard Burdine was the second chair and he was drunk during the whole child of trial. The first chair didn't do anything. He didn't call anybody. So let's just focus on the first trial, of course. But so tell me, do you, what do you remember? The prosecution, from what I read, focused on your statement, uh, you know, the yep. confession and the baby's uh, Walter's internal injuries mm -hmm. in the stomach. Um, uh -huh. Is that what you remember? Yes, I remember that. And, uh, and how many days do you remember how many days this trial was? A week. One week. One week. And you knew in your heart as you're sitting there that you were just getting railroaded. You were getting screwed. I, I knew it. I, I, I mean, because even the judge, everybody looked at like they didn't have anything uh, to, to, to any attention where it comes to my attorney. The jury was even looking on the floor. When my jury, when my lawyers got up to talk, they were looking on the floor at the ceiling. They just looked like, yeah, you know, we're going to throw you away. We don't care what he say. And then every time the district attorney spoke to say something, he called me a liar. He called me a monster. He made me out to be the worst person. He told him that I haven't told the truth yet. And, you know, my baby suffered this type of, I let him, you know, I just sat there and watched him die. You know, that kind of stuff to them. And that was hurtful for me to hear because this was my son and I loved him with all my heart and I did not kill my child. And, and that, to not be able to say anything about it was what pissed me off the most because I went to them for help and they called me a murderer. Even though I went jogging, that still did not mean that I should die and that I killed my son. I didn't know how to do CPR, but that wasn't murder. And I'm so I sit there and I knew that this was a racist situation that I was sitting in and that I didn't have a prayer in hell because I was poor black and uneducated and they took advantage of that is that's exactly it in a nutshell is and what, what, what did the jury look like were they all white yes majority white i think i had one black alternate and then i had one black sitting on the jury so i knew that my life was over just by looking at that that's why in all the pictures you see me on uh the the newspaper clippers i didn't have no smile on my face i looked at mad because i was frustrated and overwhelmed at what was going on. And I knew nobody believed. And the woman who actually uh, helped you while your son was suffering and not breathing yeah. was in the courtroom and your, your drunk defense attorney didn't have the, 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 the thought to put him on, to put her on the stand. They did not put her. I, they didn't call one witness, not one. How does that happen? And, and, and we, I mean, you must have wanted to go nuts and say, judge, what the hell is going on well, you here? Get up and scream to top. Of, but you I mean, you know, you you you're on the, at the mercy of your lawyers. We, you're thinking because I didn't know anything about the law. I didn't understand all that legal mumble jumble stuff they were saying. I thought that my attorneys had my back, but uh, unfortunately, they didn't have my back. And and the, the lead chair knew that in the end, he he really was distraught. You know, because he actually thought he won the case. And I don't see how he could have felt that he won a case when he didn't do no investigative work at all on my case, which I can understand why, because they only got paid a thousand dollars.
So they couldn't get experts or nothing else because they didn't have the money to do it with. So I know he probably felt hopeless, but that didn't help me because I ended up with the death penalty. Uh, you jumped ahead. So the jury came back. You're sitting in the courtroom. They found you guilty of capital murder. What the heck is going through your head at this point? I, I was I was broken. I was broken because I knew, like I said, I had I kind of I think I braced for it because I already knew it was coming. And when the judge told me to stand up, he said, you know, to stand before the court for, you know, when I went back for sentencing, he said, we we find you guilty. Um, we charge you with capital murder. I mean, we charge you with capital murder, lethal injection or whatever the case may be. And he said, may God have mercy on your soul. And I said, no, may God have mercy on your soul because you just don't know what you did. And I walked out the court. That was the only thing that I could say because it wasn't nothing else left to say. They, they had just stripped me of everything I thought. And when the judge sentenced you to death, um, could you believe those words were coming out of his mouth? Yes, I actually could because I already knew that this cards were stacked against me. It's just like you, it's just like you going into, uh, I don't know how to explain it, but if you're going into something that you already know, you can kind of halfway see that it's not for you. You kind of know what the outcome is going to kind of be. That's the way I felt. Was there ever a hearing that your defense attorneys put up a defense that you should not be put to death? No, not that, that not that I went to, <laughs> not that I went to I, my, most of my time was spent in the county jail. I don't know what they did. That's why I don't, I can't tell you anything about their first trial. It was like a blur. So you were the only woman on death row. What was life like in prison and on death row? I wasn't the only woman. I was the youngest black female on death row at the time. That okay. same county had just sentenced another girl, I think two or three years before me. She was black. And uh, she was she turned out to be my savior while I was on death row. How so? Because she had already went through her death date. And my death date was, I was sentenced March the 13th of 1990. And my death date was July the 2nd of 1990. So that day right there for me was one of the worst days ever because nobody told me that the state had to exhaust all state remedies before they could actually carry out a death sentence. So, man. You So your attorneys didn't explain this to you? Nobody told me nothing. So and this so day I, coming up on the calendar and you thought you were going to die that I day? I thought I was going to die that day. I paced the floors. I listened for every sound, every chain, because I thought they was actually coming to kill me because nobody, nobody told me. And how I knew anything was the, the inmate next door to me who says, Sabrina, they can't kill you because you haven't been back to court yet. Just hang in there. It's going to be okay. You know, they can't do anything. That's, that's how I knew. But I didn't get that from my attorney. I, it's, uh, it's unbelievable. That's one of the huh. hardest things to know that you are going to die and nothing you can do. There's nothing you can do about it. Nothing. So, so, wow. So, so thank God for this woman being with you. Um, tell me about the appeal process. The appeal process came and I ended up with a new attorney called Clive Stafford Smith. He's from England and Rob McDuff. Clive was looking at um, cases in Mississippi at the time, but Mosley Suttoth, the first chair in my case, 
was so sad about what had happened. So he called Clyde and asked him, would he come to Mississippi to fight my case? And that's how I ended up with Clyde. And Clyde he- came in and started doing investigative work. He said when they first came, they didn't have a dollar to their name. But they still did what it took to fight for, for my life. And it looks like two years later, Clive and his team uh, convinced the state Supreme Court, 1992, that the prosecution improperly commented at trial on your decision not to testify, which is a constitutional violation. That's like law school 101. Um, Do you remember what the prosecutor said about that at trial? He said that I hadn't told the truth yet and uh, that I I haven't even took the stand to tell the truth about what happened. Day one of law school, you learned that that's improper argument. I, I wonder if your defense attorney even objected to that. Do you remember? That's, that's the reason. Yes, he did. I remember I mean, that's, that. That is so. That's, if he hadn't did that, I wouldn't be sitting here, I don't think. So he did one good thing. He did one good thing. Yes, he did. So because of that, you were granted a new trial, it looks like. Does that sound right? Yeah, that's right. And it took a couple of years to get that Three new trial. Three, Three. So you're sitting on death row for three no, more I, years. Uh uh-uh. They overturned my sentence in 92 and they sent me back to the county jail. And I sat in the county jail three more years before because far as all good. He's very uh, he was very vindictive and very, you know, just, un, you know, nonchalant. So he just kept putting it off and the judge kept granting it. You know, Clyde would write him and he just kept I got this. Uh, can I get a continuous? Can I get a continuous? That's what he did for three years. And they mm-hmm. let it win. Did any of your attorneys try to get you out on bond? No. They said I wouldn't have afforded a bond because it was a capital case in Mississippi. Said I could, I, I didn't have, um, you know, I wasn't eligible for a bond. So I couldn't get out. Before we get to the second trial, tell me about your family. Tell me about your, your first child. Tell me, like, what's going on? In your, is your family supporting you? Are they visiting you? Are you? Do you have support during this time? My mom, which we wasn't close, like I told you at first, but when I got the death penalty and my mom heard about it, she came in and she called me at the jail one day and she said, Sabrina, I want to ask you something. She said, I just need to know. She said, did you kill your child? And I said, no, mama, I did not. And she said, that's all I need to know. And when I told her that, she became a warrior for me. Mom was all in the news. She stayed in the news the entire time to fight for me. She went homeless and everything, trying to fight uh, to let people know what Mississippi was doing. And so, you know, she she became my best friend before she's no longer with me now. She died of cancer, but she she became my best friend before all of this was over. But she really fought for me. That's beautiful. That's beautiful. So let's talk about the second trial Were the gentleman that you mentioned, Clive and his team, were they the. Uh, lawyers who handled your second murder trial? Yes. Yes. And were you more optimistic for this one? I was because Clive came to the prison. He sat down, he talked to me and he explained me, you know, what I needed to do. And at that time I was more knowledgeable because they had a law library at the prison and they let us read law books and stuff. And that's when I found out the first attorney that I had, which was the second chair was a divorce attorney. So he had no business on my case and he had a whole bunch of claims against him. So he really, you know what I'm saying? He had no business doing a capital case. Did um, anything, ha- did anything, did they, did either of those attorneys get disciplined as far as no, you know? Not as Nothing. far as I know, no. Uh-uh. 
Um, and so then uh, when Clyde was talking to me, I had a little bit more knowledge and I was more understanding because I was older. Um, cause I, I vowed that I wasn't going to go through the same thing, not knowing what these people were doing to me. So I read a lot of books. I wrote a lot of letters, just anybody that would listen. And so Clive came and he was, you know, he was brilliant. He talked to me and they told me what was going on. They, they prepared me for every step of the way, bad and good, both sides. And that's what a good defense attorney is supposed to do. Supposed I'm, to I'm, do. I'm so thrilled, um, yeah. that you, that you found, uh, a better team. So tell me, tell me about the second trial. How was it different? Clive at the time back then, like what we have now, you got uh, databases and stuff where you can put stuff in and type and find out different ailments and all that stuff. They didn't have that back then. So Clive literally had to go to a medical library to research the different problems that the Walter had. He found out that it was nephrotic syndrome, which Today, I have a daughter that has the same disease. It's a kidney disease that my son died from, my daughter had. And he had heart problems and he had chronic bowel syndrome. Chronic bowel syndrome is what caused him to um, get uh, peritonitis in his system to begin with because he could not defecate and it poisoned his oxygen supply in his blood. That is what's, that's what killed him because, so, he, you know, he, we, I didn't know any of these internal Things were going on. But then at the time we did the CPR, we didn't know how to do CPR. So whatever was going wrong, we made it probably made it worse by pressing on his chest because his abdomen was extended. So I can remember that. So we, we didn't do it right. I know I didn't apply uh, CPR right to his abdomen. Was there an autopsy? There was an autopsy. But at the time, Mississippi throwed it together. They did not have the money to do a proper autopsy report. There were no microscopic slides, no nothing. The, the autopsy was inadequate. It didn't have anything in it. It was a guy that was walking down the street one day that saw a ambulance service. And he said, oh, I'm gonna buy this ambulance service. He bought the ambulance service and he signed part of, the, of my son's death certificate. Now, how could you do that? I have no clue. You know what I'm saying? They did a lot of stuff that was crazy. I never in my life seen anything like that. I found that out after I got out, but, but back, back up during the trial, <clears throat> Clive, the same detective that wrote the statement out, he went, Clive went and got a bear that was the same height and weight as my son and told the detective to do the CPR. He said, well, now you show me how Sabrina Butler did CPR on this child or how do you do CPR on a child? He did it the same way I did it, adult CPR. And he told him, he said, you just killed the child by what you just did. Wow. You know, and it, it was showing that they didn't even know how yeah. to do CPR. So I can use like me at 17 to know how to do something like that. That's powerful. So any, were there any witnesses called at your second trial? All the witnesses were called. Everybody that should have been called in the first trial was called in the second trial. Including even the woman the doctor, who did, who, the CPR. who did the CPR and she was favorable to you, the neighbor. Yes. Everybody uh, told exactly what happened, you know, because I mean, uh, far as all good was trying to make me out to be this monster person, didn't have any feelings, didn't care about my son dying. And everybody came to the stand and said, that's not true. We heard her screaming to the top of her lungs. She was crying. You know, he just they just told everything that they saw at that at that time. Did you take the stand in the second trial? I didn't have to. He had all the evidence. I didn't I didn't have to. 
he had all the evidence and he proved that I didn't kill my child. So, yeah, I mean, it was, he said it wasn't no need for me to take him. And tell me about the uh, jury makeup. Was it any better than the first trial? It was, it was more, uh, it was a jury of my peers this time. And I think uh, I had maybe three, three or four whites, I think on the, on the jury. Okay. And um, the jury acquitted you. Yeah. They in said an hour. In an hour. One hour? One hour. Well, they probably had to get lunch. And uh, I mean, it, it could have taken them five minutes, probably, it sounds like, based upon having a good uh, defense team in place. Well, congratulations, obviously, on that. That is amazing. I love, uh, I love that part of the story. Um, tell me um, oh, one other thing, because we do have a lot of people who listen and watch these things and they love to get into to the weeds on this. You did have an expert witness on the second trial. I did. I had expert witness. I even had the doctor who recanted his story on the stand, uh, Lou Walter's doctor. Cause at what? first he was saying in the first trial, he, when he took the stand, he said that he didn't think CPR caused the injuries that he saw on the child. Then the second, uh, when he came back, he said that he had made a mistake. Wow. Yeah, I keep saying wow. Um, and, then, and then Ricky, I think Ricky Hicks was um, the um, um, he was the coroner, and he he uh, told the truth that Mississippi didn't have enough money to do a proper autopsy report on Little Walter at the time, and that you know they just put what they just did minimal. So Clyde was saying, well, how could you charge somebody with murder? You know, you know, say that it's a homicide when you don't know exactly what. My what her child died from all of the, you know, everything that you have written here is inadequate. It's not complete because it has at the bottom of his death certificate related to the cause of death. It does not say this is what your child died from. It does not say that. So when I got out, I got out December the 18th of 1995. I didn't find out about it until like four or five years later that the, my son's death certificate was still inadequate and wasn't written right. You know what I'm saying? It still was related to my case. So I'm currently, I have an attorney now who went back and found out more information of how they did it. And so now we're going against them to fix the death certificate. Even oh. now, this is 21. Wow. And, and so as you were sitting in the second trial, I mean, the way you tell the story, it's it just night and day, the two trials, were you sitting there way more confident than you were the I first was, trial? I was so confident and I was excited and happy. And I kind of understood what was going on. You know what I'm saying? I was more confident, you know, even though I still had my apprehensions because, you know, Hey, I just came from death row. You know, it still could go bad. I still could go to, you know, Clyde prepared me for all of that. He prepared me for the jury if they sway the other way, if they don't, if, you know, he told me everything, you know, he was up front. And that's what I think lawyers should be up front with the client, meet them where they are, tell them exactly what's going on. Don't sugarcoat it. You know what I'm saying? So that the client would know exactly what's going on. Don't just come in with the assumption of, yeah, you guilty, whatever. You know, I'm just going to, you know, do minimum. That's not that's not fair when it's a life. You know, Sabrina, we, we've done, like I said, seven or eight exonerees and this story, your story, your very, very personal story shows the importance to have good lawyers, good representation. It, it's Absolutely. just, it's like they should be teaching your story in, in law school 
where we learn criminal law and criminal process. I mean, this is, it's 101 and the communication that you're talking about just shows how important it is. And I kind of love how your first lawyer, the crappy one was yeah. so upset about your, about his loss that he hooked you up and it, yeah. and, and it found Clive and the second team. Yeah, he did. He, he that, turned out to be, he, he, he turned out to be okay. My phone just wants to, I'm sorry guys. No, it's okay. It's okay. Sorry. It's all, it's all good. It's all good. So, yeah. so you're acquitted. I, I can imagine you were elated and excited to get out of, of prison after six and a half years. Yes. What did that feel like that first, those first steps outside. The only thing I thought about was trying to get to my son. My oldest son was nine years old when I got out. That's the first place I went to see, to see him. Did he ever come visit you in prison jail? She brought him one time, but I ended up having to fight her four more years after I got out to get my son back. Fight she, who? My, the, his grandmother, because she wanted money and it was, it was about losing money. And she, you know, just gave me hell, to, you know, to try to get my child back. Unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, I caught hell with that. So, you know, but it all worked itself out, you know, because she was in my trial. She was one of the reasons why I got the death penalty. Why? Wait, wait, your grandmother was one reason you got the death Not penalty? My grandmother, his grandmother. And why is that? Because she was like, um, uh, he, the uh, prosecution had subpoenaed her. Um, and she was supposed to take the stand against me. But then when it came time for her to take the trial, to get to take the stand, she told him she wouldn't do it. She couldn't get up on the stand and lie, uh, you know, on her daughter-in-law like that. That's what she said. I thought you said that she was one reason you were on death row. But if she didn't testify, she, how, how did she contribute? I just feel like because her statements, all the statements that she gave, she said one day she seen me walking down the street carry my baby like a chicken or something. You know, it's crazy. It was just crazy. I think what her thing was, she really thought that they were going to kill me and that she would be able to keep my son because me and her never did see eye to eye. So she really wanted him. You know what I mean? So people, some people can just be evil. And at the time, that's that's exactly what she was. She was just determined to keep my child. The state granted you $300,000 in compensation. How did you feel about that? I wasn't happy because Not they took everything else from me. I had to take care of my, my daughter's kidney disease. I had to take care of myself. And all I did was pay it back to the state in medical bills for her and for myself. How hard was it uh, reacclimating to society after this ordeal? It was very hard because I stayed in the same town when I first got out. I, I refused to run because I was trying to get my son back from her. And I refused to for them to run me out of town. You know, they told me, they said, well, you need to leave here because we don't want you here and all that. But I didn't care. I, I still stayed. I left in 2016. Um, wow, that's a long time. That's a long time. I got out in 95 and I left in 2016. And and where where did you go? I'm in Memphis, Tennessee. And the reason I moved up here is because they have a children's Labana hospital here that specializes in kidney care and stuff for my daughter. So I'm up here for her, you know, for the get, keep her kidney, you know, care. So you have three more children since you've gotten out. I have two more. I had two, two more children. Two more children plus the one from before. So you have three yeah, children right three now. Children. Yes. C congratulations on that. Thank and, you. And how is your, tell, tell my viewers and listeners, how's your life now? All these years later. 
My life is wonderful. I mean, right now, um, uh, the guy, it was another guy that was incarcerated when I was locked up. He sent me a letter. I forgot to tell you that in the very beginning. He sent me a letter and uh, he was saying that, you know, they can't do this in your case. He was a what you call jailhouse lawyer. I think that's what they call him back then. And he was saying they can't do this in your case. It's not right. You know, I'm going to reach out to some people I know and see, can we, you know, help you and this and that. So me and him started writing and we wrote for like for 19 from 1990 to all the way to 92 when they stopped inmates from writing from prison to prison. So I lost contact with him. And when I got out, um, I started doing uh, events like right now. And I've been doing them since 96. And I, he was in a book that I had gotten from a lady at an event I did. And I said, I know this is not, you know, and I found him 25 years later and we're together now. Come on. I'm not. I'm I love that. I love that part of the story. I, yeah. I, that's Richard fabulous. Martin, he's a paralegal and, you know, he's we, we're, we're good. We're really good. My One of my sons is in the army. My oldest son is the one that I had to fight to get back. He's here with me. And then I got my daughter. She's here with me. That is such a great ending uh, to the story. I mean, congratulations on all of that. And and you mentioned you're speaking and you're and you're doing web, uh, you know, podcasts like this. Um, mm -hmm. You also have a uh, a website you're involved in. I do. Uh, tell me about that. Okay, the website is where I had to sit and think about writing a book. So I wrote my first book, and it was called Sabrina Butler. The I mean, uh, exonerated the Sabrina Butler story. But I put it on hold because in Mississippi at the time, I was very much still scared. And I didn't talk, tell all of my truth. So now that I'm no longer there, it's a tell-all book. So I'm working on the second part of it right now. And it should be out soon. Um, we're in the ending stages of it where I tell it all. Everything that happened to me. And um, I'm going to post it soon as um, it's, it's ready. But we're working on it. Matter of fact, I just got off of of a live feed with Clive just before I came on with you to put his part in there. So I'm going to put Clive in to explain exactly what was going on during those years. Cause we still stay in contact with each other. We've been in contact for years. He's, he's God sent for me Him and Rob both. Cause without Sabrina, them, I wouldn't be here. No, you would not. Uh, you would not Sabrina. I, I want to help promote your book. I want, I want you to make sure you send me the links. Uh, now this well, website I'll send your book. Oh, thank you so I mean, much. Send your book. That, that, that is kind. Um, so you're 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 also talking to state legislatures on reform, and you're actually yes. moving some needles to get some to. Uh, and this is mostly about the death penalty. Is that correct? Right. We've got it. Uh, work with Witness to Innocence, and we are an organization comprised and work for only death row exonerees. Um, and what we do is we go around to different states talking about the death penalty. And we have gotten the death penalty exonerated uh, in 23 states so far. Congratulations. That is amazing. Wow. Yeah. yeah. So so you're on a board of, of Witness Innocence. Is that the name of the witness, organization? Wit, wit, it's witness2innocence.org. If you go on there, you can see what all we do. And it shows all the speakers that are that are involved. So that's your, I mean, it sounds like it's a full-time gig. It is. It is. I work a lot. And because I mean, I know this is what God wants me to do. And I and I choose to do this because uh, closed mouth don't get fed is what I've always learned. So you have to talk in order to change things. 
And I know that this was wrong that was done to me. And I know it's plenty more that is sitting in prison right now that is looking for the same type of help that I received. And, and those that are, that are not alive, that have been killed unjustly. The same thing, their families are grieving because they knew that was wrong. So we have to change the system. We have to, because it's not right. Does your uh, does the witness to innocence.org project or people you've talked to they have a do they have an estimation of how many people are sitting on death row that are innocent? They I think if you go to uh DPIC, DPIC uh, is the one that I think they have an analysis of what's you know how it's done and how many African Americans, you know, Latinos, Caucasian, all that. Yeah, they do. You know, we've we've done some episodes on shaken baby syndrome cases. Mm-hmm. Your case kind of falls in that category. Would you agree? Yes, because at the time in Mississippi, they had a law where or the, the I mean, the hospitals had where they had to say if a child came in looking some kind of way, they had to say it was abuse in order to not be sued. So if they went in and they didn't say abuse, then, you know, they were culpable or whatever you call it, you know, to get yeah. sued. So uh, that's what that's what happened back then in my case. They looked at my son and said, oh, this is child abuse. You know, hey, we're going to charge, you know. And the police officer didn't know what was happening. So they said, OK, yeah, well, you agree with you because, you you know, medical personnel. So, you know, what's going on, you know, and I think that's what happens in a lot of cases. They just look at a child and they automatically assume without doing the research and trying to see what happened to the baby. And that's the way it was. And my son, he had a lot of problems. His kidneys were chock full of cysts. You could even tell that they were kidneys. His uh, chronic bowel syndrome was so bad. And I didn't know it was that. You know what I'm saying? And if they had only did the job, their re-job to know that my child was sick, then they could have, they would have knew what he died from. Right. They would have knew. Had there been a proper autopsy, had you had right. proper counsel asking the right, right. questions, you could have right. gotten some answers. Right. So that made me the first woman in the United States to be exonerated. And now it's two of us. I'm the first. Is the second Julie Bomber? No, it's uh, 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 Deborah Milky out of Arizona. Wait, second to be? Oh, from Death Row. From Death Row, yes. So we've from had Death Julie Bomber on our show, Open Mic, that um, was accused of killing her nephew. And it mm-hmm. turns out he died from a medical issue and she was released from prison. We don't have the death penalty here in Michigan. So mm-hmm. that, but she was... I think the first or second for the university of Michigan clinic um, mm-hmm. to get her out, which, which is a, which is a crazy story. I'll send you a link to that. Okay. Um, and I know that the, the websites people could donate to your causes. Um, yes. These are, I assume you're taking public uh, donations for all that. Yeah, they are. Um, I, uh, what, and what I'm doing too is, you know, I'm trying to keep myself exactly be extremely busy. I do a lot right now. Here in Memphis, Tennessee, I'm trying to start a halfway house for exonerated women and um, ex-offender women because we have a lot of programs for men here, but none for females. And we also have a problem with um, the way this is done is that um, people that actually committed crimes, they have reentry programs for them, but they don't have anything for exonerees. And it shouldn't be like that. It shouldn't be. I agree. Do you know a law firm down there, the Reeves law firm? Yes. I, yes. They're good people. If you ever need anything down there, they are very, very good people. Yeah. You know, I know. The, yeah. the other thing I was thinking, um, 
just a coincidence, you know, you're telling me about all these messed up laws in Mississippi. And I don't think this is a coincidence, but last night mm-hmm. we're, we're in bed watching the help. Mm-hmm. You ever, you remember that movie? You ever see that movie? Yeah. Wow. <laughs> and, and it's all about Mississippi. It it's is. all about how messed up Mississippi is. And oh, this yeah. is in the fifties. And now you're telling mm-hmm. me about it in the nineties. Yeah. And my, it's just, I, it just, it's just, it's shocking yet. It's not shocking based upon how, well, you how know, bad it's bad when you can go to Columbus, Mississippi and go in there in their uh, post office and see a mural on the wall of the black people in the field, picking cotton and the white man sitting on a horse. Now today, they still have that mural up there. That is crazy. Then they got yes. the Confederate soldier standing at the court where you get your death sentence in life or whatever. And he's standing there with the, with, with the flag draped over his shoulder. But then when you walk around the back of him, you see that it's the, it's the KKK hood. It looks exactly like, it. you know what I'm saying? And I just think that type of mentality, we don't need that. I mean, we all, you tell us, we all bleed the same. I'm so sick of prejudice, racism, all that stuff. I am tired of that. You know what I'm saying? We just need oh. to learn how to get along as a people. That's oh, what I, the nation needs. I mean, I'm tired of that. It's crazy. I, I, I'm I'm a thousand percent with you, Sabrina. Last question I have for you is: What is your message for people who are sitting behind bars who know they're innocent? What kind of hope? What kind of uh, message do you have for them? My message for you guys: If y'all are watching and can hear this, don't give up. Keep writing. Educate yourself as much as possible on your case and any legal terms that you don't know, find them out. Always, always do not accept no, because where once somebody will say no, somebody going to say yes. That's what I did. And that's why I did not stop, because I know if you got to write a thousand letters a day, I don't care. Do it. Do it to save your life. I think those are perfect words to end on Sabrina Butler Smith. Thank you so much for being on open mic, uh, sharing your story with us. It's powerful. I've had goosebumps half the episode. Um, so nice to meet you. Thank you. And if you ever need anything in Michigan, please call me. All right, Mike. All right. Take care. Wow. Uh, that was emotional. That was, uh, another, uh, crazy exoneree story from a really beautiful woman, Sabrina Butler Smith. Um, I don't think I'll be visiting Mississippi anytime soon. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. Send this on to somebody who may need to hear this, uh, donate to Sabrina's websites. We'll have them all in the show notes, uh, for y'all to see. And thank you again for being here for open mic.